This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Suzanne Tucker is one of the top designers in the country, recognized by AD, El Decor, and Lux, and is a doyen of the San Francisco design scene. There's virtually nothing she doesn't do. She's been the chair of the San Francisco Fall Show since 2015. She serves on the board of the Hearst Castle Preservation Foundation and on the West Coast Council of the Garden Conservancy. She's the founder of the Northern California chapter of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art and has received honors and awards too numerous to mention. She began her career working under the legendary Michael Taylor, who is often credited with founding the light and airy California look, full of natural elements such as stone surfaces, driftwood, plants, and even boulders. She founded her own firm, Tucker & Marks, with her husband and partner, Timothy F. Marks, in 1986. In addition to designing glorious rooms, she also produces a line of sumptuous textiles, hardware, tabletop items, and home furnishings. She's the author of two books, with a third coming this fall. Suzanne has a comprehensive knowledge of architecture and the decorative arts, and she has certainly seen a lot in her own career. I'm so pleased she's with us to talk about how the design scene has changed since she started, how she approaches her work, what inspires her today, and what she sees ahead. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Michael. Lovely to chat with you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, darling. So, Suzanne, a lot of people... I think don't understand how important Michael Taylor was. And I'd love for you to talk a little about him and how you got started in the business and how you ended up working with Michael and what you learned and all of that. How did that really get started? Well, there's about 17 stories within that one answer, but... (laughs) (laughs) You pick and choose. Some of them a little crazy. Yes, he was known to be a colorful character. Oh, Michael was. He was quite a colorful character, tall and handsome, had fabulous legs, (laughs) Beautiful hands. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting. I think perhaps why you say that Michael Taylor isn't maybe getting the recognition that some feel he should, I think it's only that sort of West Coast thing. West Coast versus East Coast kind of. Mm -hmm. um, That kind of snobbery. um, I mean, I'm not sure if it's snobbery or just maybe awareness. But Michael, he's credited with inventing the California look. And what exactly is that? Well, I actually began my career with my handy-dandy BFA in design from UCLA in England and oh, I did in not London. Know that. Yeah, and I worked with a gentleman named Peter Hood, who's since now left the planet. And Peter had been one of John Fowler's last assistants. And so I got this wonderful immersion into all things wonderful sort of British country house. And he worked on a couple of National Trust properties, things like that. And then when I came back after three years living in London with a rather failed romance, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone said, including, interestingly enough, friends of my parents in Santa Barbara said, oh, you really should go to work for Michael Taylor. You want to be in San Francisco because my friends were here. So 
I looked at Michael Taylor's work and I just thought, oh, God, it's all white and rocks and trees. Very different from John Fowler and the British tradition. A hundred percent opposite. I mean, it could not have been more opposite. And of course, what did I know at all of 24 years old, me and my, you know, little sort of snobbery of like, oh, it's not England. And it certainly wasn't. But everything that you saw of Michael's work that got published was that look, because that really sold the magazines. It mm-hmm. made the phone ring. It paid the bills. That right. quintessential, what we can think of today is Michael Taylor's look. Well, it is really a long story about how I actually got the job with Michael Taylor, because when I landed in San Francisco, it was early 80s. It was the height of the gay era here. And I could not get a job. I wasn't a gay guy. And it was it was really an interesting kind of, well, I guess, discrimination. I kept coming up against. Yes, it clearly was. And everyone said, oh, you should go to work for Michael Taylor. And then they'd say, oh, but he only hires guys. And I was like, wait a minute, this isn't very fair. And I ended up actually getting my foot in the door with a conversation with Michael one evening when I was supposed to be at the dinner table of my roommate's parents' house, and I had to excuse myself to call this man who talked to me for an hour about everything under the sun other than the job. He talked while about, you were at dinner in another house on the phone. While I was at dinner in another house, yes. And and oh, and by the way, I had to pull off on the freeway and make a p- phone call from a payphone oh. to actually set up this call. And I was greeted with the, "Oh, Mr. Taylor can't come to the phone. He's having a massage. Call back in an hour." Click. <laughs> that was an era. That was an era. And anyway, we ended up talking about everything from London to travel to Europe to Santa Barbara to art and design to cats, his two cats, and not the job. Mm -hmm. But I get a phone call the next morning from his accountant who said, well, I understand you're looking for this job. Can you come in at 11? So I did. I came in. And this man looked like Snidely Whiplash. He had this little skinny little mustache and kind of little creepy pointed ears. And he smoked those long, like, brown cigarettes. I think they were called Sherman's or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of gave me the once over and, and dressed me practically visually. And I thought this is the creepiest experience. And it was not in Michael's office. It was in some godforsaken office down on Market Street in San Francisco here. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? So he talks to me about the job. And then he says, well, the job's been filled. (laughs) After he dragged you down there. Yes. (laughs) Interrogated you. And I looked at him and and I said, let me guess, by a guy. And he said, yes. And don't ask me what possessed me to not just get up and walk out. But he then said, but Michael needs a good secretary in the days when they were called secretaries. Right. How how are your typing skills, right? Exactly. Oh, yes. Well, there's a story there, too. (laughs) So so I bit my tongue because, again, I'm like, what am I doing here? And I said, well, what's involved? So he said, well, you need to plan Michael's travel. I can do that. You need to talk to his clients. I can do that. You need to make sure his schedule is kept up and he's on time. Sure, I can do that. And so he gets on the phone with Michael and he said, well, okay, I think we've got a live one. (laughs) And then he kind of looks at me and he said, now I assume your typing skills are very good. And I looked at him straight in the eye 
having just been tested at 23 words a minute. And I said, I am extremely accurate. Well, how can you not be accurate when you're 23 words a minute? Hello. I mean, (laughs) so I could not type worth beans. And (laughs) But you knew how to spin it. That's the important thing. Yes, I answered the question. I was accurate. And so anyway, I ended up getting the job. And I remember distinctly uh, what I was wearing when I arrived at my first day on the job. And it was raining. And you had to walk down the side of the house and along these front glass windows in front of people before you actually got to the doors to go in the office. And I had an umbrella and I was wearing my Yves Saint Laurent blouse and skirt and my boots and my hair was pulled back in a little chignon. And I opened the door and I stepped in and the girl looked at me and said, thank God Mary Poppins is here to save us. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my introduction because the second thing she said was, I've been here four weeks. No one in the office has been here longer than than six months. Welcome. (laughs) Michael was notorious for hiring and firing. And anyway, cut to the chase of the story. I think I was the only one who talked back to him. And I wouldn't put up with him (laughs) in his sort of behavior. And so I consequently became his pet. And I was the teacher's pet for sure that everyone would go to and say, take this to Michael, ask Michael for this. And, you know, it it became this sort of ridiculous sort of circus. And he started just taking me on projects and jobs. And obviously he saw that I actually knew more than my bad typing skills. And so I became his assistant. But then I had to hire someone to replace me, which was actually the bigger challenge. So (laughs) I got sort of thrown into this crazy ass world of Michael Taylor's in the early 80s. And definitely got a crash course in a different aspect of design that I had in London. You stayed in London. Yes. But as much of a tyrant that Michael was, and he was really incorrigible. I mean, he could be he could be just so horrid, and I would tell him that. He'd be mean to people. I mean, really mean. And so what did I learn from Michael? Well, I certainly learned how not to run a business, and I learned how not to treat employees. And you just don't need to behave that way. But no, I was terribly fond of him, and I did learn a tremendous amount. Yeah. But I think what people don't realize about Michael is that what his genius was, was the mix of what we all talk about now. And he was doing it 50 years ago. And not just bringing the outdoors in, but he was putting contemporary with antiquities. And he was a master at that. And that was the part that resonated with me, not the sort of rocks and ball pillows and and right. That the thing. ball pillows. Yes. I yes. always was amused by that. Michael those. invented but, the ball, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, that's why I was saying people I don't think realize, a lot of you look at like, Axel Vervoort. Yes. A lot of his work was Michael. A lot oh, yes. of that was predicted by Michael. And John Saladino, I think, in a way, obviously Michael had an influence on Saladino. And I think that there was that sense of living with multiple eras, as you were saying, at the same time, but taking the best of each era and making them work together, which is a real skill, not easily replicated. No, that's very true. And it was it was certainly something I think that Michael was masterful at in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, he was a great collector and he mm-hmm. loved antiques. 
And he would find just a, a really unusual piece, whether it be from Rome or Paris or London or New York, wherever. But it was all about how he mixed it with other things and also the scale and proportion. And that's right. been my mantra ever since. Right. You know, it's color is subjective, style is subjective, but scale and proportion, if you miss on that, you miss on everything. Right. And, you know, that was something that he certainly had an eye for, and I have an eye for it. I mean, it's sort of a gift, I think. Mm -hmm. But, and it was interesting because I remember years ago, there was a house that was built here in San Francisco, and I won't name names, but they hired a then very famous New York decorator. And it was a very California house, big scale, lots of big windows, so forth. And this New York decorator got the scale completely wrong on the furniture. It looked like dollhouse furniture inside mm -hmm. of this sort of large volume spaces. And yet this was a really, really good decorator, but the scale was off. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, oh dear. Um, well, I do think it's it's interesting that people on the West Coast do live differently than people on the East Coast. Living in an apartment and in, in the sky on Park Avenue is very different from living in Santa Barbara or even San, even in a townhouse in San Francisco. The connection to outdoors, the light is different, all of that. Mm -hmm. True. And coming from London, I mean, you're studying in London for three years, certainly the light there is very different from San Francisco. So what did you take from London that you could work with when you went to San Francisco, mm. even with Michael or then when you went out on your own? Yeah, a great question, because most people don't understand or see, I should say, not understand, but they don't see the difference in how you have to approach your work. The quality of light is such an important factor to consider wherever you are. And wherever you are, you have to consider which directions you're facing, north, south, east, west. Where's that morning sun coming from? Where's that north light? Where's all of that? And so coming from London, it was a very interesting exposure into how color that was so important and works so beautifully in London, those wonderful icky greens mm -hmm. and those kind of musty rose colors, these colors that are beautiful in England absolutely do not work, say, in Southern California, where the light is brighter. They just, it, they don't work. They just fall flat. And so you really have to take into consideration where you are. For Santa Barbara, for example, Santa Barbara does not face west. Santa Barbara faces south. And the light quality is very different than what it is in Los Angeles, for example. And same with New York. And you have to consider where you are, literally latitude, longitude, and quality of weather. San Francisco is lovely, but we get these really gray days. And you're up high in a skyscraper in a high-rise apartment building, and you have to factor in the fact that you're going to be looking out onto gray. Right. And how do you want to balance that quality of light? How do you want to approach that? So it's all those components that you learn, certainly living places, but also traveling and seeing and working in different places because you do and work working around in the different country. places right. absolutely right, right. Mm -hmm. now you worked with michael for quite a while since 1981 and then he died in 86 in 86 but then you sort of were the heir apparent and took over well kind of 
Well, I mean, well, actually, so factually, there were two different companies. There was Michael Taylor's interior design business. Okay? And there was the product line. And then there was the product line, Michael right. Taylor Designs. So Tim and I actually bought Michael Taylor's interiors. So what did that mean? We bought file cabinets and fabric bolts and... <laughs> <laughs> Detritus. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, all the really important things. But we did. We That's what we bought that end of the business. But, we were then owner of all the plans and all the drawings mm-hmm. and all the documents and all of that. The Michael Taylor Designs business, which was at that point, it was very few pieces. It was the cast stone furniture mm-hmm. and a few of the wooden pieces. Paul Weaver bought that side of the company. And then he, of course, expanded into showrooms and grew the Michael Taylor Designs line. But Tim and I bought the interior side of it, which was a great launching pad for us. And we actually were called ourselves Michael Taylor Associates when we first started. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. And then we realized pretty quickly, I mean, about six to nine months into it, that the name doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very rare, and I think we've seen that with Design World. Macmillan is, I think, the one exception that they've been able to carry that name all the way through. But you know, in the design world, it's not like it's not like old J.P. Morgan and Morgan right. Bank. You know, yeah, where the that branding name, is different. The branding you know? is different. That stands for something different. In the design world, people knew what Michael did. They wanted to know what I did. What do you do? What are you about? And so we pretty quickly then just changed the name, Tucker and Marks. And wasn't an issue for you at the beginning, because your husband doesn't do the design work, does he? No, he's he's business. and Right. Yeah. That's what I thought. So, but you were a, not a man, not a gay man. <laughs> I mean, design has been more welcoming to women than a lot of other industries, but was that an issue for you that you felt faced prejudice because you're a woman or you, you hear you're carrying on a legendary? I, I did. You know, it was interesting. I, I don't know at the time I think of prejudice per se as the word, but I was very aware that particularly coming, I think, to San Francisco mm-hmm. and being a woman in design. At that time, if you think about who was big in design here, it was all the guys. Mm-hmm. It was Michael Taylor. It was Tony Hale. It was Billy Gaylord. It was Scott Lamb. It was Valerian Rybar in L.A. It was, it was it was all these men. And there really were not that kind of name notoriety for women designers at the time, which is so interesting because the tides do shift. Mm-hmm. You know, a thousand years ago, it was Elsie DeWolf in New York, and she was right. it, right? right? And then, of course, there was Sister Parrish, and she was it. So it was just a, it was just one of the times when the world had shifted. And so I definitely felt that mm-hmm. in terms of like, okay, prove yourself, right? And who were the first clients who, shall we say, risked turning to you? Well, a number of Michael's current clients when he they, died they were left on. high and dry. Right. And so I was very fortunate to be able to carry on with them. And they knew me and they knew I knew Michael. But I think the other advantage that I had was that I could actually say, well, Michael would have loved this. I mean, you know, I knew him. <laughs> and who was going to argue with you, right? Well, exactly, exactly. And, and of course, the clients who'd been Michael's clients, we could also sit and reminisce. We still do sometimes sit and reminisce about Michael and tease and joke. But I was very fortunate. I started off with some really stellar clients. 
Mrs. Dollar was one of them. And then when she passed, there was her great sale that Christie's had. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Knowles, the Diana Dollar Knowles collection. I mean, you know, so I've, I've had that great exposure. Dodie right. Rosecrantz. I mean, you right. know, I'm name dropping, but those were sort of these women. Those were women. names to drop. You know? Well, they were they were the really fabulous women and ladies of San Francisco who had particularly Dodie Rosecrantz and and Diana Knowles had great style and great taste of their own. And I remember that was one of the things that Michael had said to me. He said, You're as good as your client. If your client has great taste, your client has deep pockets, your client has time and an interest, that's a win win win. Don't always get those things together, of right. course. Right. But yeah, you're as good as yeah. your client. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like, well, two things. First part, it's like, when did you feel, was there a moment when you said to yourself, oh my God, I'm no longer just carrying on Michael Taylor. I'm Suzanne Tucker, Tucker and Marks, that you really felt you've came into your own as your own force in the design world. Huh. I would probably say that aha moment, as Oprah mm-hmm. would say. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably say it was when Paige Rents named me to Architectural Digest 100. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty big validation on the planet at a yes, young age. Yes, that's still a pretty big validation. Even yeah, well, years not later, quite but... what it was, but yeah. No, it was, uh, right. Yeah, but that was big. You know, I was early 30s mm-hmm. and that was pretty special. Paige was really the Mrs. Astor of the design world. It was a 100 as she opposed was. to the 400, but that yeah. you were in, you were mm-hmm. on the right list. You were in. She was, crowd. and Paige was a formidable, formidable woman for sure, and intimidating, and yet could be so fabulous and wonderful and supportive. But she expected loyalty mm-hmm. and it demanded loyalty. And yes. I was very, very loyal to the magazine for years because of her. And I respect that, I'm, I'm a very loyal person. But I think that was it. I think the other point when I can think of that validation moment in the planet was when I launched my fabric line, which was 11 years ago. Yeah, I want to ask you about that too. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I've always had a passion for textiles, but I launched this fabric line, which probably shoot myself now if I knew what I was getting into. But I got an order from Albert Hadley for one of the fabrics. And And that's validation. I was, yeah, that for me was real validation. I thought, wow. And for those of you listening out there in Wonderland, it was my fabric called Hatley, which is named after my daughter, which she picked her favorite. And it was the first one to sell. And the color that Albert Hadley bought was the espresso brown. Oh, well, that figures. (laughs) Yeah, that figures. That figures. And then he closed up shop a year or so later and the rest is history. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. I want to ask you about the clients because clients have certainly changed. When you were starting out, you were saying Dodie Rosencrantz. I mean, those were women who were in society, which in a way doesn't exist anymore. Now it's all about influences or whatever. And they were women who entertained and they traveled. And 
How are your clients today different from that? I mean, beyond the obvious ways, do you think clients are looking for different things from you than they were, say, 30 years ago? Yes, I do think clients are looking for different things. And I'd say it's a real cross-section of people who still value their home environments because they do want to entertain. They like sharing their homes. They are they're into that sort of home experiences. And then there's the other clients who they want their homes to be more havens. They don't want to private. be exposed. They're much more private. They're not entertainers. If they're going to entertain, they'll probably do it, you know, in a club or a restaurant kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I think there's also been a big shift in there's, I don't think there's this sort of the quote statusy sort of things that existed. That that whole those status things have shifted. In that I, I think, and you have to separate clients right now. There's people who are going to go to Restoration Hardware and do their whole home from Restoration mm-hmm. Hardware. Great. For better or I worse. Mean, right. Whatever. Exactly. But I mean, that, and that's nothing that wasn't actually invented by Mr. Macy's years ago. Mm-hmm. He was the first mm-hmm. man in retail and fashion to put every single piece of that dress or that suit out in the floor and he mass marketed. So there's always going to be a customer for that. But there's also that client, that personal client who they don't want to walk into their neighbor's house or their best friend's house. And they don't want to see that same sofa and that same fabric. And oh, you've got that table and you've got that lamp too. Hopefully, people outgrow that and they want their own uniqueness. And that to me is where hiring a really good designer at whatever level you can afford, you're going to get that professional perspective on how do you personalize your home? Mm-hmm. How do you make it you? It's just right. like wearing the dress. I mean, the dress looks like one thing on one person and another on another, but how do you make it yours? So I think that's that uniqueness now that I think clients are looking for, no matter at what level. And I think that's. I think that's good. I think obviously the rules have been broken, just as in fashion, but you have to know the rules in order to bend them and break them. Right. That old cliche is true. Takunin could draw like Michelangelo, but then he could that's right. break that's all right. of that stuff. Same with, same with Picasso. He started off drawing portraits and things and then took off into his world. Speaking of that, is like one of the things that you, expectations, what clients want, one of the things that I know you love and you've, you've always been the San Francisco Antiques show, you love antiques. And I'd love to get a sense, and vintage pieces. The definition mm-hmm. of antiques is so vague anyway, 100 oh, years. Is I'm, that, beca- is I'm that becoming an antique. Right. Well, <laughs> we all are. But, you know, vintage, all that. You've always been a champion of that. But there was a time, and certainly the people who buy from Resto aren't so interested in antiques unless they're not. So what do you think is happening in terms of that kind of traditional design that you love, that you learned working with John Fowler's protege. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's coming back? Are you excited about that? What or Because I know for a while, antique dealers were struggling. Even online dealers were struggling. Well, they still are. Yeah. They still are. And I've never, ever, ever departed from supporting antiques dealers and putting that sort of thing into my work. And I'm probably perceived as a more traditional decorator, designer, but I actually do quite a bit of contemporary work as well. But I do contemporary my way, mm-hmm. which is right. not minimal. It's subtle. It's layered, but it's very subtle. And I always will put in something of age. And I think that's where people need educating. 
And the younger generation, they need to see that. They need to educate themselves about why a piece is going to give character to a room. And you can have everything completely brand new and contemporary art and all of that. But if nothing has any age, it doesn't have any soul. And that's what's missing is you've got to have it. You've got to bring in a soul to a room. And I feel that a vintage piece, an antique piece, that's going to bring that character in. And it doesn't have to be filled with vintage pieces or antiques pieces because that becomes boring. Right. So that's that's understanding. Right, no one wants edit. to live in a period room. You know? No, no. Period rooms are for museums. Right. That's where you go and you educate yourself. And you, you look at this and you have to understand, like, why is this important? Why is this Regence chair important? Which was contemporary and new at the time. Exactly. It was. And consider back then, they had no computers. They had no CAD drawings. They had to hand carve everything. And everything was done with the human hand. So educating yourself and understanding and why does it look graceful? What's the proportions? And why does something look clunky? It's the proportions. So I think that's where I think a, there's a generation now that really needs to educate themselves and not just go from cookie cutter run of the mill. And there's so many things that you can get now online, the availability. I mean, Cherish is a prime example. And I shop Cherish, of course. Not everything has to be the most pricey. It can also be things that is just a one-off it's your favorite color or it's something you've always admired or your grandmother had it or whatever. And you get that and you put it in a room, you live with it, move it around. At this particular moment, what period in history? Is there a style? What's inspiring you for your current and forthcoming projects? Because I know how busy you are. Mm. Gosh, what's inspiring for my forthcoming projects is so global because I'm doing a contemporary house down in LA. I'm doing an Italian villa in the country. I'm doing a classical New York apartment. I mean, it really is running the gamut, which to me is the most exciting thing, of course, because then I get to just stretch all of my design kind of brains. Notice it's not just one brain, it's multiple brains in my <laughs> scrambled head. <laughs> Uh, yes, as Tim likes to say about our in, our business together, that you know it's nuts and bolts, and that he's bolts and I'm nuts. But, um, <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I'll own it. <laughs> but you know, there's so much variety out there right now. Mm -hmm. For example, I was just at the opening night gala last night of the San Francisco Ballet, our world class ballet mm -hmm. company. One of the great ones. And yeah, and to be at first off an in person fabulous event. How wonderful! With fashion again, and then our dance company is so thrilling. But what was really great was seeing the fashions, and that kind of anything can go. And of course, there were just the beautiful couture dresses and old guard and new, young, beautiful things and all of that. And then there was this guy who looked so great wearing these stiletto heels and like a long tutu. And there he is totally bearded and just, he looked <laughs> fabulous. I mean, he really did. And then there was the guy with the dreadlocks wearing this fabulous sort of sequined gown a la tuxedo. And I just thought, you know, this is the anything goes. And I know San Francisco is known to be extra wacky and all those things. But I just thought, 
gosh, the tolerance of each other on our planet and how we need to be exposed and we need to understand and we need to embrace the global world and design and, and everything right now. What excites me is that. It excites me to find the unique item that can fit into an environment to make it personal, to give it that little bit of tension. And I always liken it to... Okay, so getting dressed. If you have a fabulous kind of brocade jacket, man or woman, and you go and you put a fabulous gloppy brooch or a pin or something on top of it, it's not going to work. Both things kind of get mm -hmm. a bit lost. But you have a chic black jacket or a white or a beautiful mousy gray, and you put some chic pin or something on it. Those two t things give each other tension and they resonate and they become each other's best partners. And that to me is what's exciting about design is it's not whether it's contemporary or traditional, classical or whatever. It really is like the hunt is fun because there's so much more exposed to, to us at our fingertips. I still support dealers around the world in terms of reaching out to them. And I'm really immersed in it now because I've taken on yet again the chairmanship of the San Francisco Fall Show. And it's now under a whole new world, whereas we're no longer under the same beneficiary. And so we're really starting it from bootstraps here, even though it's the 40th year and the, we're doing a Ruby Jubilee in October. But it's a, it's a whole new world. And I really want to mix in that tension you know, mm. that contemporary dealer with one-of-a-kind things with the antiquities dealer across the aisle to the 18th century English dealer to the modern art dealer. That is what gives you that wonderful overview of design and, and how we can put things together. And people always say, well, how do I know what to buy? And I will say, well, buy what you love. I should say buy what you can afford, but mm -hmm. I've never followed that. I have bought <laughs> things that You'd I- You'd be never, a hypocrite if you recommended uh, that, right? <laughs> I would totally be a hypocrite because I bought things back in my 20s and in my 30s that I could ill afford, but I just fell in love with them and I figured out a way to make it happen. So buy what speaks to you. That's really- Always good advice. Important. Yeah. And now I wanted to get back to your fabric line because mm -hmm. one of the things, well, first of all, you do some of the most sumptuous and beautiful fabrics I've ever seen. They're just really mm -hmm. extraordinary fabrics. But what amazes me about your line is that you did it, my understanding at least, is that you did it on your own. I mean, you didn't Correct. sign up with Schumacher or Kravit. So how does that, how did that happen? And how do you manage that business? <laughs> God, well, it's a good thing you're not talking to my husband. <laughs> or maybe the banker. You know, it was interesting because I, I, it was kind of one of my big goals of like, gee, dream scheme, what would I like to do? Oh, I'd like to write a book. Okay, I did. Oh, I'd like to do a fabric line. Okay, I did. I actually looked at the two sort of business models, either doing it all yourself and what that meant, or reaching out to Pravit and Brunswick and Lee Jofas, and they were all different back then, and Schumacher and so forth. And I realized, you know what? I don't want to be doing someone else's 
line, even though there's, I mean, I use those lines all the time, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I really wanted it to be me. And I, I wanted the control over it. It's something that I, that I've always loved. And so I don't consider myself just an editor. I've also collected vintage and antique textiles. So I had, I already had a library to choose from. So I took a big leap, really not quite realizing what really that meant. And you're sweet to say what you did about the line. Thank you. It is an act of love. But it surprised me in that I tapped into a part of me that I had not felt since I was in college. And that was a creative part of me that didn't have a client didn't have someone telling me it had to be this way, had to be this way, couldn't do that. And it was just purely me being creative and looking and do what I love. And so that's really how it started. And probably today, if I'd known really what I was going to be involved, I'm not sure. Well, I'm actually, I'm sure my husband would not want to do it. (laughs) I'm not sure I would do it, but it's been a wonderful addition and augmentation to our design world. But the funny thing was I got several phone calls from the fabric houses that I buy from constantly and have for years. And they were sort of like, well, does this mean you're not going to buy our fabrics anymore? And I'm like, of course not. I can't be everything to everyone. I mean, no, this is, but I do love it. And I have a really brilliant team behind me. And that's that's a gift, is, is to have them. They're and where are most of your fabrics produced? All over. The United States, mm-hmm. yay. Mm-hmm. England, Scotland, France, Italy. Oh, we're Belgium, really all over. Belgium, Indonesia, Chile, India. Wow. All over. It's all a global over. line. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Because you have to find the mill that is going to be Well, you have embroideries, you have wovens, you have full, you even now have um, performance fabrics. Yes, yes. Beautiful performance fabrics. Yeah, that's been, that's been a nice sort of venture. And I understand that's what everyone wants now in their homes and, and particularly their family rooms, their kids, their dogs, and you don't have to worry about it. The patios, their pool houses, all of that. Yeah. Yes. I'm working on a whole new collection in performance textiles as well that I'm really excited about. So it's fun. I want to ask you one other question. We talked before about how clients have changed, mm. but I'd love to get a sense from you because you have seen it all, shall we say. <laughs> how do you think the role of the designer has changed and what's expected of the designer, what designers provide? In this age when people can research everything online, buy things online, how do you see the role of the designer having changed? Because it used to be that the designer was almost a bit of a life coach and mm-hmm. like a, provide entree to a social world. Mm-hmm. Now that social world doesn't even exist anymore. So how do you see that having changed? Well, it certainly has changed given internet and the fact that the average person is bombarded, not just exposed, but bombarded with design now. Not necessarily a bad thing. No, I mean, it's democratized design and people are loving it. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah, exactly. That's right. a very good thing. And people are excited about it. Although I do have the, the one client, she's she's really interesting because she said to me, she said, you know, I really just don't have any taste. I don't. I just don't know. And I said, oh, come on, you do. And she goes, no, really, no, I I really don't. I don't really care. She goes, my husband has the taste. And she's absolutely right. 
And it's so funny to me because she's like, well, what do you think? I'm like, okay, it's this one. She goes, okay, good. I mean, she's done. <laughs> what I love about that client is she knows herself and she's confident in that. And I think it's the clients who they don't yet know themselves or they're insecure about not knowing. Because let's face it, there's this ridiculous thing that, okay, I'm going to liken this to boys don't cry. Okay. Flip side of that one is a woman should decorate her own home. She should know how to decorate her own home. Or men don't ask for directions. They should just know how to get there. I mean, these are ridiculous things. And yet poor men have bought into, I'm not supposed to cry. Cry your eyes out. It's good and healthy. And women think, oh, I should be able to do this myself because it's a domestic art. Oh, come on, honey. Let it go. Put your time elsewhere and where it's more going to be more meaningful than you try to jump through backflips or trying to tell a designer what they should do. No. Right. So. And it was never a domestic art. It's a science and an industry. It, it is, you know, And it's an engineering thing. It's everything. I mean, that's what people don't realize. And I, yeah. I think they're starting to realize. It is really important, I think, to, for a, from a client's perspective, to interview a few people. And I always say to my clients who are interviewing me, I'll say, who else are you interviewing? And if someone says, well, I'm not, I actually say, you should. Because this is a relationship. It's not just opening a checking account someplace. Right. It's an intense relationship. And it's an intense relationship. And it's an intimate relationship. You're going to get into these people's lives and you need to understand them and understand their psyche and what makes them tick and what resonates with them and how their family works or how their, their single life works or whatever it might be. There's an art to that and there's a science to that and there's a professionalism to that. And you also can't forget it's a service industry. Actually, first right out of UCLA, there were no jobs in design in LA at the time. And I went to work for iMagnons, and I was probably their youngest executive manager they ever had. And I was managing the Yves Saint Laurent boutique and the Bottega Veneta and Louis Vuitton and half the designer salon. And I got a crash course in service and how to, the customer is always right. Right, client and services, huge. Client services are huge. And that's paramount. And we're in the beauty business. You have to remember that too. Cosmetic industry doesn't hold the license on that. We are also in the beauty business. How do we look? How do we present ourselves? Yeah, all of that. It's the whole professional picture. And I think the client is different now in that they're seeing too much. They're kind of oversaturated with design. And they'll say, oh, well, I was looking on the web last night and I th found all these things. I'm like, well, la-di-da for you, you and your brother, right? <laughs> because anyone can do that. That doesn't require anything special. But the fact that I like to see what clients do come up with, and I do like to see sort of what, what their eye is going towards. But what's more educational and informative for me, I actually want to see what they don't like. Show me a picture mm -hmm. in a magazine, and I know you like pink, whatever it might be. I know you like green. Tell me what you don't like in this picture. That informs you far more onto what to bring to them, where their taste is, where their mind is. That's and then a good advice. I also think you have to be pretty firm about things. You have to be firm about what you charge. You have to value yourself. You have to be firm about what a client can and can't do. I and mean, I had one client one time 
say to me, well, can I put bookshelves in my living room here? And I said, well, it depends. What are you going to put on it? And she said, oh, you know, all my little tchotchkes and things. And I said, no, no bookshelves. A bookshelf, then no books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No little tchotchkes busying up everything. No. But I do think the client is different. And you're right, society is very changed. But I still will, will buy dishware and linens for my clients. And someone you know, will still call up and say, shall I use the pink or the peach napkins? There are There's, there is still so that. There still little insecurities. People are still... I'm not sure if it's insecurities or if it's like, remind me how I was supposed to do this. Because, I mean, if anyone's watching The Gilded Age, they're watching how society develops from those who have to those who, or those who had not to the, suddenly those who have. And people need educating. They don't necessarily know how to set a table correctly, or they don't know how to Whatever. There's a whole, the whole slew. Yeah, of that. and I, I think that was a traditional thing for designers was you would teach people how to live, and I think that's still true for a lot of designers now. I, mean, I think that's yes. why people watch the design TV shows, not just to see the before and after, but to learn how you're supposed to even operate in your kitchen or how you're supposed to set the table and or entertain. Yes. And I yeah. think that design is a huge part of that, and a designer's it's kind of still a bit of a social arbiter in a way. Well, I agree. Yes, very much so. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I love Charlotte Moss's quote that setting the table is everyday decorating. Mm-hmm. It's the little things. When did pretty become a bad word? Right. And it's things like that. Like you take the extra steps, make the extra effort. And I also think, you know, it, it used to be, and this will sound funny to the younger generation, but it used to be the decorator would come in and tell you to get rid of everything. Right. And right. this imperious sort of, oh, it's all ghastly. The pronouncements. And Out, the, exactly. Yeah, sweeping gestures, right. Yes. Right. Well, I mean, thank God, actually, those right. days are gone. Right. I personally love personalizing that house. I love the personality of my clients and making it their home. And one of the biggest compliments I can ever receive is when someone has gone to someone's house and they'll say to me, oh my God, I was at so-and-so's house the other day. It is so them. It's so beautiful. That's great. I don't need to walk into a house and say, oh, it's a Suzanne Tucker cookie cutter house. I got that one from Michael. Michael did the cookie cutter look because it made the phone ring. It paid the bills, got published. And he was brilliant at that. But to well, me, that's kind of a different level of insecurity. It's like you well, want what your yes, neighbor has. Exactly. And to me, the best, the best work and the best houses are the most personalized ones. And the ones that you help personalize. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. And I adore all my clients because of I'm course. very fortunate. And of my wonderful course. staff. Yes. Of course. Well, this has been so fantastic, Suzanne. I can't thank you enough. You've such a font of wisdom and experience and And yet you're still so passionate about what you do. And I find that totally inspiring and fun. I really thank you for inviting me to do this. I love Cherish. I think it's such a brilliant idea. I'm so glad you were here. And so I want to thank you again. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. 
and we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.